Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Eschettino. And today, I wanted to continue with our discussion of World War II. Um, I wanted to pick up where I had left off, which was the Germans basically running into a brick wall in the Eastern Front. And I, I we, we need to shift things a little bit over because... At the same time that the Germans were, you know, trying to take over Europe, uh, another rising power was making efforts in the Pacific. And that, of course, is the Empire of Japan. And the Empire of Japan was uh, attempting to increase their sphere of influence. And they were running into some issues. And it really goes back to Japan viewing how World War I worked out. So in World War I, the First World War, Japan fought on the side of what we call the Entente, the Allies. They, they were against the Germans. I mean, it didn't really matter that, you know, declaring war on Germany, there were maybe a couple of German uh, colonies that Japan had any shot of taking. But they viewed the war and thought, hmm, why did Germany lose the war? It wasn't because of the toughness of the troops, it wasn't because of technology. It was pretty much because they ran out of supplies. Now, uh, if you listen to my podcast on the First World War, you know, the war was basically, after, you know, the, the trenches got dug on the Western Front, it became a war of attrition. Now, not only did the Allies or the Entente powers have more troops than the Germans. But I mean, you can, you can get away with that as, you know, even if someone has more troops than you, simply by, you know, killing more of their guys, causing more casualties from their guys than they do with yours. So if they outnumber you, you know, two to one, but you're knocking them out at a three to one or four to one or five to one ratio, you know, that, um, I know someone will come along and tell me, uh, I did the math and everything. Yeah, math's not my best subject, but the bottom line is that you can you can engage in battles even during war of attrition and defeat your opponent. The main problem Germany ran into in World War I was that over time they simply ran out of everything. They didn't have enough steel to be able to develop tanks and, you know, uh, highly advanced aircraft. They ran out of food. The British the, the British blockade of Germany uh, was wildly successful and probably um, did more to help end the war than almost anything else because at a point by 1918, German civilians were starving. So, uh, you know, Japan looked at all of this and thought, okay, so we're an island nation. We don't have the most resources. But what we're going to do is we're going to be smart. In order to put ourselves in a good position... We're going to start acquiring lands that have these natural resources, food, oil, rubber. And in order to do that, we have to start going on the warpath a little bit. So Japan decided to attack the country kind of next door, we'll call it. They went after China. Now, China was viewed as an easy target because, uh, you know, after the Qing Dynasty fell... The Republic of China was established. China was in a bit of a, a, a downward spiral. 
temporarily. Japan thought, we can whack these guys. And if you actually know a lot about the Japanese-Chinese history, Japan, and this is no offense to anyone in Japan, I'm just saying this is what it is, don't worry about it because in a few minutes I'm going to make things up to you guys by stating what really happened during Pearl Harbor. Uh, Japan felt has always felt that China is kind of second, but they're superior. China is kind of like, look, these people, if they exist, they exist to kind of, you know, serve us in a way. And so Japan launched attacks on China, expecting to be able to take over most of China and be able to gain tremendous amounts of resources. However, the Chinese fought back. Um, they were outgunned, but they were fighting in defense of their homeland. And whenever you add that factor in, it becomes a tremendously advantageous, you know, uh, ability for a team. It's kind of like having that home team advantage. So the Japanese got involved in China and and started, you know, trying very hard to take over China. Uh, it, it didn't go as well as they thought, and they had to resort to harsher and harsher tactics. And again, um, you know, if you've not read about uh, the rape of Nanking. Um, don't do it after you've eaten anything, um, and don't do it if you were um, in an upset mood. Um, you know, what happened there was absolutely horrific, uh, but Japan was trying to stop Chinese resistance, and so sometimes the way you try and stop a country from resisting is you just go on this whole, okay, no problem, we're just going to start killing everyone, and let's see how that works out. Uh, China, however, has always had a very long... They're like, okay, no problem. Listen, if it takes us 100 years to beat you guys, it'll take 100 years. We've been around for many, many, many years. And to this day, I really feel that that's something that um, a lot of countries don't realize about the game plan with China. You know, the, the, the Chinese do think about things differently. It's a very kind of like, listen... If it takes 50, 60, 70, 80 years to do something, uh, it'll take that many years. We'll be around, don't worry. And whereas in a lot of places in the West it becomes, oh, we haven't, we haven't completely accomplished all our goals and it's been six months already. I was actually discussing with a relative of mine today. I said, you know, I think one of the things in the United States we've become so used to on-demand society. We've become so used to you know, when you take out your mobile device and you try and launch a website, if that website doesn't come up within five seconds, you're almost like, oh my God, what's going on? You hit the refresh button. But we want everything to happen now, not five minutes from now, now. And those of us, and if you, uh, if you are old as me, you'll get a smile on your face. Those of us who remember dial-up internet, those of us who remember when it used to take a couple of minutes to download a photograph of something, which is why most early websites had no uh, graphics on them. Those of us who remember when it used to take 20-some minutes for one song, just to download it and go to bed. We are now in an on-demand society. And I think that this is a situation where, um, you know, we, we, we want things done immediately. So anyway, in this case, though, China's treatment, uh, Japan's treatment of the Chinese was absolutely brutal. 
And so eventually the United States started getting a little worried about things over there. And we also did not want Japan expanding that much because, <clears throat> hello, but the United States also had interests in East Asia, um, as did many of the U.S. allies, you know, uh, uh, Britain, France. All of us were kind of sitting around. So the United States at one point decided, you know what, we're going to cut off oil to Japan. Now, without oil, and Germany realized this all too well, which is kind of one of the reasons why, if you listen to my World War II uh, podcast, the previous episode, okay, uh, the early years, uh, Germany attempted to take over the Caucasus in Russia. Why? Because they wanted oil, all right? Oil was necessary. It was, the, it was the keystone. Without petrol, without fuel, your planes are not flying, your tanks are not driving, okay? Um, so Japan at that point all of a sudden got into a very nervous situation. The United States basically told them, listen, you're going to stop this nonsense with China or that's it for the fuel, Okay, we're going to cut you off. Now, there were ways around this for Japan, all right? And one of the ways around this was to take over most of Southeast Asia, which is fine, okay? Except that at that point, most of Southeast Asia was part of colonies of countries, United Kingdom and France. So now you had a very very difficult decision for the Japanese to make. And this was, all right, we need to, now that we're having our oil cut off, we need to procure even more places that have natural resources. But if we do that, if we attack these countries, they're going to be drawn into a war against us. And countries like Britain and France are being supported by the United States. I mean, even though it wasn't official, there was a lot going on. They knew the United States would not be happy uh, if they were attacking British and French properties. And then comes the, I mean, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when these things were decided, when these meetings were held. So the Japanese looked around and were like, okay, if we go to war and we try and take over, and they were pretty sure, given their military abilities at the time, uh, especially with the Navy and, and their naval air arm, that they could take out a lot of Southeast Asia. They could occupy it, including major reserves of rubber and oil. However, it might draw the United States into a war. It might. So then it became a question of, all right, let's assume... But we have to assume the United States is going to get involved in a war. So what do we do? Well, at that point, it becomes, well, the last thing we want is for the United States to get involved in a war with everything that they've got. All of their navy. Which is based at the pristine location of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. At that point, it becomes, all right, well, we're going to have to take out the U.S. fleet in Hawaii in order to stop the United States from being able to interfere with what we do. Once we do that, we're going to be able to run roughshod over the rest of Asia. All right. There were a couple of major flaws with this line of thinking. I'm going to talk about them right now. First of all, Isoroku Yamamoto, who was one of the architects of the Pearl Harbor attacks, had studied in America. 
he said to them, the, the Japanese actually thought, a lot of the higher-ups in the Japanese, they felt, and I don't know why this is the case, and I, I welcome someone to throw this out there at me. Go ahead and, and leave a voice message. Uh, DM me on Instagram. Countries in the last hundred years have always felt for some reason that the United States is kind of this cowardly nation. They won't fight back. They'll, they'll give in. You know, the Germans felt that in World War I. They were like, ah, you know, we'll, they'll, maybe they'll send soldiers. But the American soldiers aren't up to snuff on things. They're, you know, they, they won't really be able to take on veteran German soldiers. And, you know, then ask, ask, uh, ask the, the Germans at uh, Bellow Woods, the ones that lived, you know, how they ended up dealing with that. And with Pearl Harbor, it was the same way. There was actually a discussion. They really felt that the Americans, if the Japanese could hit them hard enough at Pearl Harbor, the Americans would be like, okay, okay, all right, we got the message. Let's have a peace deal here. You can have the greater economic zone, the East Asian economic zone. They were going to take over a lot of places. They didn't have plans to take over Hawaii. They didn't have plans to invade the West Coast of the United States. All that stuff is, I mean, it's fantastic, uh, you know, historical fiction for novels. I think, uh, does Harry Turtledove have a couple of books out? I forget if any of his books involve Japan invading the West Coast of the United States. Though They could get as far as Kansas City before there were any troops to do it. That was never going to happen. They did, first of all, they didn't have the resources at all. And they didn't have the ability to enforce that. And they didn't want it. The Japanese didn't want to conquer the United States. They wanted to be the big boys of the Pacific. They wanted to be seen as the dominant force in the Pacific and in East Asia. Okay, that's, that's what they wanted. However, like I said, uh, they decided we're going to hit the United States at Pearl Harbor. Now, Yamamoto basically said, all right, and it was a very famous... Um, you know, quote where he talked about saying, look, I can give you, if you want me to, I can give you six months of unrestricted, we will hit them and for six months we'll be able to do whatever the heck we want in the Pacific. But after that, I cannot guarantee anything. And this coupled with his commentary after Pearl Harbor, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant was absolutely spot on. He knew because he had lived in the United States, he had attended war college in the United States, he knew that the Americans would not go you know, gently into that good night. And he tried to warn his supervisors, his superiors, look, this is going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. You don't know how bad this is going to be. But they were like, no, no, no. We're going to hit the U.S. They're going to sink all their battleships. The other, I mean, battleships are the only thing that really matter. Uh, aircraft carriers, I mean, it's not like air power is going to become the single most important thing in military warfare from the mid-1940s onward to, oh, I don't know, today. And so, you know, he did it like a good general. They put this together. Now, here's where, remember, about 10 minutes ago, give or take, I said that I would tell you where the Americans screwed up. American intelligence basically was still on this whole idea of like, just like the Russians, and if you want to have some fun, go look up the you know, Russia, Russo-Japanese War 
in the first decade of the 1900s. The Russians, it was like, hey, uh, guys, look, uh, it looks like the Japanese are going to hit us and hit us hard. And I was like, the Japanese are Asians. We're Europeans. There's no way they can do anything to us. Next thing you know, the Japanese are sinking all of the Russian East Asian fleet. Um, And the United States took the same interest. There was basically this idea that the Japanese would not be able to mount a successful attack that far away as Pearl Harbor. The thinking was that they would hit the Philippines. The idea was that it would be an attack on the Philippines, and then that would be that. You know, we'd be able to, you know, deal with it, recover. And so when, on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor a Sunday morning, uh, it came as a complete shock. Now, I'm also going to do something else. I was watching a, um, I was watching a show the other day on these guys that are debate. you know, they're, they're the conspiracy theorists where, like, the moon landing never happened. Also, the Earth is flat. Um, Anastasia is still alive. Uh, dinosaurs existed along with you. Yeah, all these conspiracy theories... You know, they're fun. I get it. I I understand. It's fun to just be like, but what if? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so there is a conspiracy theory that uh, President Roosevelt knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. And he allowed it to happen in order to get the U.S. into the war. Because before Pearl Harbor, the overwhelming uh, American position was let those kooky Europeans, oh, they're at it again, killing one another. Let them kill one another. I mean, <laughs> Harry Truman, and I forget what year he said it, so I don't want to say senator or vice president. You know, his philosophy on, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and Germany, I, I guess was senator at the time. His philosophy was, listen, whichever side is losing, we should support them so that both of them can kill one another off, okay? But this was, the, oh, those Europeans engaged in their crazy hijinks again killing one another off because the Germans want this and the Russians want that and the French and the British. But we're over here, and at the time, remember, there was no plane capable of launching from Europe and hitting the United States. There were no missiles. There were no... Nothing could hit the United States. The the continental U.S. was as safe as safe could be, all right? So there was no concept of like, oh, you know, I mean, today, obviously, you know, and and into the 60s, once uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and long range bombers became a reality, now all of a sudden we weren't safe anymore. So we had to just, the United States was like, oh, let them kill one another. Sounds good to me, man. You know, uh, who's playing uh, baseball today, you know? However, this discounts the following. First of all, FDR's former uh, Secretary of the Navy would never have allowed this Second of all, the loss of life was catastrophic at Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was the single greatest loss of life until the 9-11 attacks. Um, also, there was a loss of multiple battleships and accompanying sea craft. Uh, and it was a huge black eye for us. I mean... The idea that the Japanese could do this to us just must be the United States, man. Come on. The reality, as always is the case, okay, always look to the most common denominator 
Occam's razor. The bottom line was that the United States simply just felt that, and I know this is going to sound terrible, but it's true, it was a racial bias. If Japan was a European country, I really think there might have been a different take on Pearl Harbor. I think they might have thought, well, maybe they could attack Pearl Harbor. But it was like, oh, you know, guys were like, listen, the Japanese have, you know, multiple carriers, hundreds of aircraft. Uh, maybe they might hit Pearl Harbor. It's like, no, they're Asian. They can't do this. Yeah, well, they did. The Japanese obliterated the Pearl Harbor base um, with a few notable exceptions. And this is where the conspiracy theorists come in. Number one, the aircraft carrier's route. This was they were on a routine mission uh, training out. So the aircraft carrier's route, uh, and they didn't end up getting sunk. Number two, uh, the Japanese did not manage to hit or, or destroy all of the oil reserves that were on uh, Pearl Harbor and a lot of the uh, the bays that were, were there for uh, repairing things. So, yes, the attack was devastating on the surface, no pun intended here with naval warfare, but really, and, and, I, and I say this, with, with a sense of, you have to understand, I'm not saying this to impugn the lives that were lost or to say that they didn't matter. They absolutely did. And if you ever get a chance to go to Pearl Harbor, um, it is absolutely, if you can go through it and you can go out to the memorial and see the names on the wall and see the oil that is still coming up off of the Arizona and you don't get a tear or get misty-eyed, you know, at the idea of all of those young men who, you know, drowned in their compartments on that Sunday morning, um, then, I, you know, I don't know, then you're, you're, maybe you're made of sterner stuff than I am. But when I was out there years ago, it was a terribly, terribly emotional moment. Um, but the reality was, was not nearly as devastating as it looked on paper. Um, most of the sunk ships were raised within several months, and the United States, and this is the other thing, the United States went overnight from being a bystander to being fully involved in the war. Declared war against Japan, Germany, and Italy, then declared war against the United States. Why? We'll never know. They just felt that it was, I guess, the thing to do. Um, <clears throat> ridiculously stupid thing, but... They did it, which was great for the U.S., because then it was like, okay, now, now we don't have to pretend anymore. And everyone is on board. No one anymore is saying like, oh, this is a European thing. This is this and that. The United States would go on, and I'm going to talk about this in the next podcast because it, it takes a little while to really appreciate things. The United States would now go on to unleash the most potent fighting force in the history of the world. Now, I know you might say, well, how do you define that? Well, here's how I'm going to define it. And like I said, in the next podcast, I'll talk about it a little bit more in, in more detail. The United States went on to fight against Japan pretty much single-handedly, okay? Because very quickly after Pearl Harbor, the remaining French and British positions in East Asia were taken over. The Soviet Union 
was dealing with a few million Germans who were desperately trying to kill every single last one of them. The United States dealt with that, but then they turned around and supplied the Soviet Union with trucks and food, which saved them. I posted this on my Instagram, it was about two weeks ago, you can go back and find it, spam, spam, that <laughs> that highly processed uh, combination of pork shoulder and other pork parts and ham and that good stuff, um, <laughs> spam saved the Soviet Union because they had lost all of their grain-producing regions in Ukraine and Belarus. Um, So, Nikita Khrushchev agrees with me on this, if you don't want to take my word. You can ask, well, you can't ask him, he's dead. But if you were alive, you could ask him, or you could look up the fact that he said that basically spam saved us. So at the same time, we're basically supporting the Soviet Union. We also then started just basically pouring metamaterial into England, convoys over the seas, the, the Atlantic Ocean, um, and then after that invaded uh, North Africa, helped destroy the Africa Corps, went into Italy. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's a whole a whole kerfluffle there, which I will go into and talk to you all about. But as far as Japan was concerned, they did have pretty much six months of have it your way. They went on a a rampage throughout the Pacific and East Asia. And then just about six months to the day after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese made an attempt to finish off what had remained of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And the U.S. at the time was rearming. And at one point, the U.S. was putting out, I think, a ship a new ship a day or something like that. And some of the, the, you know, between all the different shipyards, a couple of ships a week. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. Uh, but at that point, the Japanese decided they were going to crush the remainder of the U.S. fleet on Midway. And the Midway Islands, named because they are um, <clears throat> Midway across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I, You know, I, I'm blaming historians for this. And cartographers, uh, you know, don't don't come up with more interesting names. Just be like, what should we name these islands that are about midway between the Americas and East Asia? Why don't we name them the Midway Island? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. that sounds great. Let's. That's good. No one would think of doing that. Anyway, so they did. They named them the Midway Islands. Uh, and in that battle, the Americans had, you know, broken a Japanese code, knew they were going to attack, still almost got beat, but basically pulled one of these, like, imagine in a, in a, in a boxing match, imagine getting absolutely, you know, your, your fighter is getting beaten on, you know, for several rounds, and then all of a sudden, in the eighth round, and I've seen this really more in MMA. I don't know. Maybe I should say MMA. I've seen guys getting pounded on in MMA, uh, mixed martial arts. And then all of a sudden, at one point, they catch their opponent. For some reason, their opponent's going to throw a punch or going to move something. And they catch them with a punch. 
and all of a sudden you just see the 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 eyes just go into that glazed over mode and then it becomes within 20 seconds of that punch the fight's over it's done even though this guy had been winning the entire match the entire you know it, it doesn't matter they're done and that's kind of what happened at Midway. And we'll talk about that again. I will talk about Midway because it's a phenomenal battle and it's a very heroic battle. I mean, the U.S. throws everything in the kitchen sink on a, a terrible gamble. But, you know, listen, that's the way wars are won and lost. Battles are won and lost off of gambles a lot of the time. It, it, you know, yes, there's, there's method of madness. But as Napoleon said, and I'm going to loosely quote him, you know, as soon as, as soon as the shooting starts, all the plans go out the window. Okay, the plans are good until the shooting starts. Um, and, and with Midway, it was no different. You know, the, the U.S. came out there. But the irony of all of this um, is that, and I'm taking part of this, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. If you had anything to do with writing the old PC game Command HQ, I used to have it back in the day. I'm pretty sure my parents threw it out along with most of the other stuff that I had with my computers. Back in the day, sadly, they don't appreciate that stuff, but this is going back 20-some years, 25 years, more, more than that, probably. You know, the, the irony is that, and it was in their manual, in order to avoid fighting a war in which they would be at an economic disadvantage, Japan eventually ended up provoking a war with a country that had an economy 16 times larger than they did. And that's what happened. Japan, you know, who was like, listen, we got to make sure we can support ourselves in, an, in a war. But what are we going to do? Well, eventually we're just going to attack the United States of America. And it's like, dude, they are so much more, you know, like the, their abilities to wage war are so much greater than ours. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so they did. And so, um, by 1942, and this is the, the really, the turning point, the year of 1942 is the turning point. Because with Midway in the Pacific, the Japanese are not only stopped, but they lose this is five of their carriers. I'll, I'll talk about it in more detail, like I said. Devastating them. Carriers are the defining factor of the Pacific War. The Japanese lose they lose things they cannot replace. The U.S. can replace. The U.S. can lose a carrier or two. We can replace it. Replace it five times over. The Japanese cannot. In Germany, and today is the anniversary of the date where the Germans started the Battle of Stalingrad, which would last until the very beginning of February, in which the entire uh, German Sixth Army was destroyed. 300,000 soldiers, give or take, uh, ended up having to surrender with less than 90,000 left. Um, only a few thousand would end up coming back to Germany. So we're talking about 1942. If you think about it, at the beginning of 1942, everything's going great for the Axis powers. Germany, yes, set back in Moscow, but then in the beginning of 1942, once the spring campaign starts, they go back on the offensive knocking Russian armies out left and right, taking hundreds of thousands of prisoners. Japan, taking over all of Southeast Asia. It is great. Things are looking absolutely gravy for the Axis powers. And yet, by the beginning, within a year, the Axis powers will find themselves 
in Russia, the Germans will find themselves without a southern army at all and, and looking at the fact that they've now lost men and material they cannot replace. And the Japanese will now be in a situation where they're like, oh boy, okay, the Americans are, uh, you know, they're, they're replenishing all of their aircraft and they're replenishing their carriers. Um, and you know what, even you can replace aircraft, but what you can't replace is you can't replace the pilots. You, you can't replace seasoned pilots. And Americans, not like they had seasoned pilots at the time, but they had a lot more guys than the Japanese did to be able to do it. In any case, the Japanese couldn't replace the, the aircraft. So it's, it's a fascinating time period, that 1942-1943. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in the next episode that I have. Now, I will say this. Um, coming up this week in the United States, we have the Republican... Uh, convention, which is basically going to be about five days of President Trump talking about how great he is and, and everything. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking around about that, but it's it's pretty much going to be true. And you, you know this if you know anything about American politics. You do. Uh, so I might be talking a little bit about if, if something happens. Uh, I might do the next podcast on that. If not, if there's nothing major, I promise I will uh, continue on with my uh, podcast about uh, World War II because it's just, it's, it's really, it's fantastic stuff here because it really starts in 1942, 1943, you know, the war takes on a whole other dimension and it, and it truly becomes a world war um, in the greatest sense. I know World War I was a world war. I mean, people don't talk about it, you know, I mean, I've talked about how there was, in Africa, there were, there were battles and East Asia, even there were battles, but World War II, I mean, because the United States is involved um, in both the Pacific and in, uh, you know, Europe, uh, it gets a lot more. And, uh, you know, I've talked to several friends of mine um, from Europe, and for them, the idea of World War I, World War I is taught much more, um, in a sense, because, it, you know, I mean, in the United States, we barely cover World War I. We really don't. It's a, it's a shame. It's a shame. But in, in Europe, the World War I is very covered. I mean, it was fought, you know, mostly in Europe um, as far as the Western Front goes. The United States, so World War II, that's where everything is. The number of movies, you know, you get John Wayne running around, you know, single-handedly defeating the Japanese. You know, you get uh, all these different guys. I mean, you know, the longest day um, from here to eternity, the movies that came out. Oh, you know, it's just it's World War Two for the United States. You know, it was where the United States basically went from being, I, I will say, a second-rate power in a sense, to being one of two global superpowers. And the superior one um, overall, uh, and would outlast the other one and become the only superpower. And now is trying very hard to give that away. But uh, anyway, so that's what we're talking about for tonight. Um... I hope everyone is doing well, and I hope everyone is being safe, and I will definitely be talking to all of you uh, in the next week, and like I always say to you, if you have questions, comments, um, you know, please leave a voice message, uh, DM me, at Antonius Optimus, on Instagram, I'm on there uh, every single day, you know, let me know what's going on, let me know if you have issues with what I've said. Um, or if you have questions about what I said, I'm always happy to uh, go on about that. Otherwise, 
like I said, I hope you're all well, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye.